Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from Lord of the Rings, Planet of the Apes and King Kong star Andy Serkis and Jonathan Cavendish, fellow co-founder of the Imaginarium, about what's to come from their motion capture studio in 2023 and beyond. And from All3 Media, Chief Executive Jane Turton, ACF Investment Bank founder Thomas Day, a Satcher Media Group co-founder Marina Williams, and Access Entertainment President Danny Cohen about trends in M&A and content investment in the coming 12 months. Known for his motion capture roles in the Lord of the Rings film trilogy and King Kong, Andy Serkis has directed movies such as 2017's Breathe and Mowgli Legend of the Jungle through his company The Imaginarium, co-founded with producer James Cavendish in 2011. Also maker of movies including No One Gets Out Alive and Death and Nightingales, The Imaginarium has produced TV shows like The Bastard Son and The Devil Himself, as well as an upcoming drama series about the woman behind the Madame Tussauds Waxworks Museum. Circus and Cavendish spoke to Rockfleet Productions Managing Director Emma Smithick about what's to come from the company in 2023 and beyond, with the former embarking on his TV series directorial debut and developing a show rooted in the world of digital avatars and non-fungible tokens. Introduce the Imaginarium to everybody by going back to the origin story. So, uh, back in 2004, Four, um, I, I, I was just coming back from having worked with Peter Jackson on King Kong and came back to the, uh, directing a video game project. And when I arrived back in England, I realised that the performance capture, which is the technique of creating digital characters using uh, live, live actor performances, um, that there wasn't really the facilities here in the UK to, uh, to, to, to be able to do that. So I ended up taking a whole team. And at that point, kind of... Um, character creation for video games was just going through a, a real rebirth and and the cut scenes for video games were becoming dramatic and so it so there was a, a high degree of importance placed on performance so but i ended up taking the the um the whole team back to new zealand to be able to shoot it because there wasn't anywhere in the uk that were, were, that had the facility to be able to do that regardless of the fact that the cameras had been created in oxford software in cambridge and the cameras had been shipped out to New Zealand. There was not a sort of place. So, so during, around that time, um, I, I'd been introduced to Jonathan, uh, who had been running a very, very prolific and powerful uh, TV and film production company. If you'd like to talk about that, yeah. So I'd got to the point where I'd done, I'd always done television and film at the same time, which was unusual back in those days, and. I sort of started off in an odd place. I ran the marketing for the launch of Channel 4 a very long time ago. And that meant, actually, there were four of us sitting in a room on Brompton Road inventing Channel 4, having conversations like, why don't we make films? Somebody said, well, that should be called Films 4-4. We went, no, it should be called Film on 4. There was no independent f- television or film business at that time. So Channel 4 created that world that I then sort of stepped into. So I have a marketing background, and I was looking 10 years ago at what I thought the future was going to be. And I'd made lots of films, like the Bridget Jones Diaries films and lots of TV and stuff, but I thought, there's got to be something more. And what I thought was the more was meeting this gentleman, who was the world's living expert at performance capture creative technology. My father always said, if you're going to work with somebody, work with the world's best. So here he was. So we thought, okay, we will create a company that is a production company 
and a performance capture studio so that it's genuine next generation storytelling. We are genuinely going to be making things using technology to serve story. And that was the company that we set up. It's important to note that about five years ago, we split the two companies off. So we are the production company. The studios are a sister company, which we partly own, and we can use it, and Andy can use it creatively whenever he likes, but we now are just a production company. But the, the idea was, when we came together, was to create uh, an, an environment which was a place where writers, directors, storytellers could come together and try and work out how stories were going to evolve over the next 20 or 30 years, how, what the delivery would be, how the, 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 the means of getting to that place, and what sort of stories we all would want to tell and receive. So, so that sort of gave birth to the, the, the Imaginarium is literally that, a place where you can get together and create and imagine new forms of storytelling and new stories. And, and, and as Jonathan said, the, the actual means of, of that company, uh, the, the, the desire to uh, create, be, be more specific so that they grew into two different places so that the, the, the actual studio itself is uh, we're now it has been based at Ealing and is moving to Pinewood and has been servicing lots of big films. Part of the problem also was the fact that we we couldn't get into our own studio to make stuff because we were servicing other people's projects. Um, but but we decided that it was really important to push and develop uh, the script side and the production company side because also part of that journey was was my transition into directing and Jonathan producing films and TV projects uh, for the company and also alongside myself. So that was that, 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 that kind of migrational and um, the, the, the sort of the origin of the company is about skills that can transform and, that, and that's hugely important and, and nurturing skills and bringing on new and interesting writers who, and giving them a platform. It's, it's, it's really about creating an environment of, uh, of, of creative freedom, I suppose. Can I ask you a bit more? About, I, th I love the, this idea about the, the creative ambition to facilitate creativity and host that space. But very, I think a lot of people in this industry have that ambition, but not everyone gets it right. And I'm interested in the, the top down, because very often it comes from the top down, and I'm interested in your partnership specifically. And Jonathan, I saw... It was an interview you gave on a red carpet and you talked about Andy having huge vision and huge flair. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about your partnership and specifically about how you operationalize that huge vision and huge flair. Yes, I mean, Andy is... I love talking about Andy. He's also my agent. Uh, <laughs> um, Andy is the most imaginative person I've ever met. And he understands story and he obviously understands acting and he understands world building because he's been at the center of most of the greatest film franchises of the last 20 years. If you think about it, he was Caesar in Planet of the Apes. He's been in Black Panther. He's been in Star Wars. He's been in, obviously, in the Lord of the Rings. He basically co-directed The Hobbit. And so his world building skills, he's, a, he's an artist. He's a brilliant saxophonist, actually. Um, and... <laughs> It's really annoying. He's a mountain climber. I haven't actually f yet, he was a very good cricketer, I haven't actually yet found something that he can't do. I'm sure there is something. 
and I secretly test him consistently, but he always comes up trumps, which is very annoying, but there we are. So basically what we do together is we, on the things that we work together on, which are his projects specifically, so we've made three films together. One of the reasons that I wanted to partner with him because I knew he would be a great director. And I actually, um, very oddly and slightly self-obsessedly, developed a film about my own parents' life, which became a film called Breathe with Andrew Garfield and Claire Foy, which I, he directed, which is pretty fundamental trust. Um, and it's a brilliant, brilliant film, actually. He, he is an extraordinary director. We then made a film called Mowgli Together, which was for Netflix, which was an extraordinary world-building, entirely performance-captured movie using our own studio with Christian Bale and Kate Blanchett and Benedict Cumberbatch and him acting in it as well. And then we made Venom Together, or Venom, Let There Be Carnage, uh, which was a challenge and a brilliant exercise, really, in showing the world that Andy could effortlessly make a gigantic film with a very pliant star. Um, and so it was, and now we have a number of other television projects and film projects together, which we do very closely, hand in hand, as a creative partnership. And also then what we do is we supervise together the slate for the rest of the company, which are projects that we produce together, and we bring in the best talent. And one of the advantages, perhaps, that we have, particularly Andy, is that he's worked with everybody, and everybody knows him, and everybody wants to work with him. And to a much lesser extent, that's true of me too. So we can actually access really big stars and directors and writers to do our shows. And it also means we can be totally international. So we embrace, I mean, of the next year's projects that we are doing in television, Two of them are set in Scandinavia. One is in Swedish. One is set in France. Two are set in America. And two are set in the UK. So we are really very, very international in that sense. But I think it's the world building that Andy brings to the table, not just on his own projects, but on the projects that we do with other people. And we're very collaborative indeed. Because we're a talent-led company, we're actually quite used to the idea of working with other people, not least other production companies. We, I think we have eight or nine projects which we're doing as co-productions co or joint ventures with other production companies all around the world. But essentially, this man's imagination and world-building skills are unique, and that's the thing that I love most. So, Jonathan, you said to me the other day that one of the... Well, both of you said... Um, that one of the common denominators of the projects you've done and the projects you look for is life enhancement. And I wonder if we could actually just try and distill the essence of what makes an Imaginarium project by looking at the back catalogue and also throwing forward to what's coming up. Yeah, I, I, um, I had to make a... I had to write things down because, <laughs> because what we've done appears to be so varied that there doesn't seem to be a pattern on it. But then, of course, there's always a pattern in everything. So I have put a pattern on what we've done and what we're doing. Obviously, it's fake, but it's also true. So, because everything is fake and true. So it, we divide it into a few categories. So we do, we do some true stories, 
Breathe is a good example. We've just finished a film with Taika Waititi called Next Goal Wins, which is the world's first and I think last Polynesian football film. But it's incredibly moving and incredibly funny. And we're doing a film with the great writer Johnny Sweet about a hideous uh, H-Boss banking scandal in this country that ends well. Um, and Andy will talk about this later a bit, but he is doing with us an extraordinary, unreliable biopic TV series of Madame Tussauds. And all of those have in common that they have people in extremely difficult situations who triumph. And the aim of each one is that you laugh all the way through, you feel pretty scared, and then you feel gigantically life-enhanced at the end. So that's a strand that is about making us feel better in our troubled and disastrous existences. Um, then, totally opposite, we do scary stories. So we've done a couple of uh, films for Netflix. And as I say, we're completely length agnostic. We find a story and we fit it to the length. And that's one of the reasons that we do still quite a lot of films. A lot of the films are for streamers. But we did a film called The Ritual that was a big success for Netflix. We then did a very successful film called No One Gets Out Alive. Scary films. The point of them is to make you shit scared. And we are doing um, a TV series, Reinvention, Reimagining of the Wicker Man, with Urban Myth, written by Howard Overman, uh, which is very exciting with um, Studio Canal and uh, other partners. Um, then we have what we call our sort of unique world-building movies, like Mowgli, where we create uh, Andy creates a world that is entirely a new world that nobody has, has ever seen before using all of our technologies and our imaginations. Fungus the Bogeyman, which is a show we did for Sky with Timothy Spall, last film series that Victoria Wood did, Keely Hawes, uh, Joanna Scanlon, really funny show, totally performance captured. The first time, I think, performance captured ever been brought to TV. Um, and now we are doing a movie that's in production that sadly we can't talk very much about, which is an American set version of George Orwell's Animal Farm with such mind-blowing casting that I can't talk about it, but <laughs> it will rock your socks when you hear it. Um, so I apologize for that, uh, that Andy is also directing. And that's actually our first um, animated film, in fact, with aspects of performance capture, but fundamentally animated. Then we actually do classic storytelling. Um, so we did a, a TV series for BBC uh, called Death and Nightingales with Jamie Dornan and Matthew Rhys, uh, written by um, Alan Cubitt of The Fall fame. And we're doing a, a number of those. So we've got a fantastic show called The Girlfriend, which I can, for the first time, announce. We have Robin Wright starring in and directing which we're doing next year. Um, we haven't set that up yet, so I'm expecting a great frisson of activity at the end of this. Um, and a a, an adaptation of a book called uh, Annie Thorne, which was written by, bestseller by C.J. Tudor, which we're doing with White Ball Films starring Richard Armitage. That is also a fresh announcement. Um, so those, those are sort of classic storytelling, but being us with a bit of a twist, all with big, big talent um, uh, applications. And then we have a sort of genre fantasy, often aimed at a younger market. Um, Venom is obviously a very good example of that. 
and our absolutely magnificent series, The Bastard Son, The Devil Himself, which I'm sure some of you have seen. If you haven't, you should, on Netflix, um, which is going down a storm, dropped about a month ago. Um, and those are, those are the sort of categories, I suppose, that we principally operate in. I've made sense of the chaos. Um, uh, but also, we pretty, well, we pretty much do anything. I mean, we probably wouldn't do flat police procedural. There are lots of people who are better at that than us. We probably wouldn't do sitcom. But everything we do, I think, has quite a lot of comedy in it um, because everybody in the world has quite a lot of comedy in them. And why take that out? Yesterday, there was a panel that I moderated with John Petrie, head of comedy at BBC, um, Angie Stevenson, who's um, at BBC Studios in LA, and Kenton Allen. And we were talking, we, we kind of touched upon formats. And actually, you know, if we if we look across Europe, there are, and, and actually further afield, there are a lot of formats that are doing really, really well when they're uh, brought over and, and done in English language. So thinking of Hull Razors, which is a very unlikely show that you'd think would be successfully translated, came from, it was an Israeli format. Um, but then The Cleaner came from Germany. Um, lots, lots of shows doing well. Is that something that you would consider if somebody came to you with a format? Ha have you considered it? Or, and if not, why not? No, we, we totally have. And there are several um, projects that I can't announce yet, which are <coughs> formats from, from abroad. And we are, we are incredibly open to what is now happening quite a lot, which is people coming to us and saying, we've got this project, you're world builders, you have a performance capture studio, you understand next generation storytelling. And we're partnering with people who have amazing shows that they need help to launch, literally creatively, so that you know Andy and our world building skills can be employed. Or things that our wonderful development team find, which are not just books, they are formats or they are ideas. We do quite a lot of reimagining. You know, The Wicker Man is a good example of that, um, and we have quite a lot of other things that are sort of big brands. I think there is a depressing thing going on in television, which is take something that did well 20 years ago or even 10 years ago and remake it. And that's okay if you reinvent it, if you reimagine it, if it's a couple of the elements are similar and you're using the brand name recognition. I get very depressed when I watch something and it's kind of like the thing that I saw 20 years ago. We don't do that, but we love taking hold of something and spinning it and turning it into something else that is vaguely, <laughs> vaguely recognizable, <clears throat> but not slavish. So yeah, we do, we do a lot of that. Andy, as a multi-hyphenate actor, director, founder, innovator, what have you not done yet that you would like to? Um. Well, I mean, I've not I've not dire directed a, a TV series yet, so I'm excited excited about um, about the you know what that offers in terms of building character over a longer arc. I think I think that's you know obviously people are loving streaming, people are loving content in in that form, and it's it's it is just not something that I've done, but that that is part of the plan. And uh, the Madame Tussaud project is is going to be one of the fir the first to do that. I mean, it's such an incredible story. And, What's remarkable is it is literally one of the greatest stories never told. It's it's incredible what people don't know about about a lot of people don't even know Madame Tussaud is a real person, or and particularly in France, uh, 
completely unknown, which is extraordinary too, seeing as she held from there. Daughter of an executioner who was, you know, destined to become as, um, as, uh, as history and, and, uh, and lineage goes, you know, if you're an executioner, you marry into other executioners' families, but she decided not to do that, so she teamed up with her uncle who was, who was a doctor in Paris and who was working on waxwork models, and she sort of gave him this incredible business perspective, which was a, a very early form of um, in, sort of insta-generation uh, marriage of celebrity and gore, which becomes then very, uh, you know, attracts lots of people. And then she spends the next 89 years becoming a ferocious businesswoman who can't really communicate with people on an emotional level. I mean, it's a really incredible story. And uh, it, it, and so, so again, using, our, using um, you know, Waxworks coming to life, singing, uh, unreliable narrator, uh, jumping forwards and backwards in time. It's not a kind of... For instance, it's not a it's not a historical. It's sort of flea bag in the 18th century. It's sort of with a little bit of the young ones, you know. It's a, but it's sort of <laughs> that's that's what's exciting and 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 for me, creating a world like that is is not about doing. I mean, it pretends to look like Bridget and all the Crown, but it's not, you know. And that and that it's it's being able to to to, to have that kind of energy and 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 a new approach to to the format. Which, um, mm. which, which is really exciting. And could you maybe talk a little bit about um, the setup of that show? And because I know it's with New and Connect, is that right? And you're doing a co-pro with a French company. That's right. right. Yeah. That's how, so how did that How did that come about? How did you put that together? We we just really connected when we we we, we met with them. Yeah, we <clears throat> we had a number of meetings with the sort of people who we thought could help us put it together. We really liked New and. Um, and we met Marie Guillemot from Felista Films, who's our French production partner, who's fantastic. Um, <clears throat> we were lucky because a lot of people wanted to do it with us, so we were able to pick the people that we thought would be best. We're just about to go out with it, with them. Um, and, yeah, it's, we're lucky because we are completely, we're wholly owned, we own ourselves, we don't have any <clears throat> ownership relationship, so we can go to the people who are most passionate about the project and we have a slightly different attitude to many in the sense that we talk a lot about what we're doing before we do it and as we're doing it and we learned something very important from Peter Jackson on Lord of the Rings in the world where the studios used to never give out any information Peter did a weekly or every two weeks blog to the fan base going this is what we're doing I hope you think it's right um, communicating with the people who are gonna watch the show. And we do quite a lot of that because Andy has a huge following, we now have quite a big following, and we can communicate with those people who are the fans, and we ask them what they think. We ask them about casting. Sometimes on a couple of shows we're doing, we're actually casting by the suggestion of people out there because they know more than we know about who they want to see in a particular part. And I don't think that there are that many people doing that. There are not that many people who are in a position to do it. But again, from a marketing background, you, you listen to people, you listen to what they want, and then you do your own thing. You don't slavishly follow it, but it's really interesting <clears throat> when you know, tens, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people are telling you what they think about something. Um, I want to go to some of the audience questions, and there's one um, about uh, how did the bastard son and the devil himself come about? That's the Netflix. Okay, so, so that was a, a book series by a woman called Sally Green called Half Bad, 
Um, and the nice lady who did the Hunger Games optioned it before it came out. <clears throat> then it didn't do as well in America as they thought. It did really well everywhere else. So she didn't do anything with it. We snapped it up um, when the day she dropped it. And, <clears throat> and this is quite a good example of the way we, like everyone else, I'm sure, uses their relationships with... So we'd, we'd done Joe Barton's first film, The Ritual, we thought he would be perfect for this. <clears throat> and we developed it initially, actually, as a movie. And then we thought, mm, the days of movies like that working are, have gone. So we then adapted it into a TV format, went to Netflix. They bought it there and then. Um, and we then developed it from there. We brought in four <clears throat> writers to work with Joe, who were at that point not very well known or not much, you know, hadn't had much, if anything, made. Uh, all of them, actually, have, all four of them have gone on to greater things. All of them, in fact, have had shows made even since we did The Bastard Son, which is pretty, pretty remarkable. Um, like Ryan J. Brown, who did Wreck, and um, uh, E. McKenney, who did um, Karen Pirrie. Um, and <clears throat> so then we just set about making something that was unlike anything else. So I don't know if any of you have seen it, but it is a little bit, the violence is delicious, juicy, and enjoyable, but it's quite violent, it's very funny. <clears throat> and the three main young protagonists are in an ever-changing metrosexual world of <laughs> changing alternative views. And the audiences and the reviewers have gone mad for it, which is great. I th it was until Quite an annoying Irish uh, reviewer reviewed it. Uh, it was 100% of Rotten Tomatoes. It's now at 96, which is not bad. <laughs> I'll, I'll get him. Uh, it's, not, <laughs> it's not bad for a YA show, but it's, re it's really good and fun. And Joe is a brilliant writer. We're doing a number of other things with him. We're doing another, a number of things with the, with the writers who we work with on that show. But that's how it came about, and it, and it required... The, the, the brilliance of the great Lindsay Salt, hurrah, who's now running the BBC, hurrah, to spot what it was and to stick with it and to go, no, keep pushing it out there. Don't, <clears throat> don't make it any less extreme. People want extreme. So respect to Netflix for letting us make the show that we wanted it to be. Mm. Can we talk a little bit then about creative technology? So you keep mentioning this idea of next generation storytellers. And I just wonder um, if you could elaborate a little bit on what role technology plays and when it comes into the creative process. At what point you're well, thinking it, about it? Sure. I mean, it, it's all, it, it, look, technology is only there to serve the story. That, that's it. And, uh, end of. And, and, you know, but it's become a hugely important part of, you know, as we all know, virtual production um, and the use of video game technology when it was scorned at 20, 20 years ago, it's actually become the backbone of the film industry in terms of previs, in terms of working out how you can, you know, it was really looked down upon as a, as a second rate art form. And now of course, everyone is kicking themselves because because video games are one of the highest art forms around. And, and in terms of writing, production, you know, visualization, art, you know, the art departments, the, the, the look and so on. And, and if, when you look at all the big, big uh, productions that are on, you know, Rings of Power, you know, Game of Thrones, the amount of, of, of technology that's used to, to create those shows, obviously the, the, the building of volumes that you can shoot within and so on and so forth, 
virtual production is huge. But what, what Jonathan and I were always interested in was, was looking for the next delivery platform and how, and reusing assets. So, for instance, um, a project that we're working on, uh, to give you an example, Nevertars, which is, which, is, um, which is the story of what happens to all the great um, CG concept pieces of art that never gets used in a, in a movie or in a, in, a, in a TV show. What happens to them? Well, they end up in a folder called Old Assets, and there they linger, and they're alive, and they're waiting to be used, and they're the kind of digital no-hopers in our world. And they're sort of, you know, they're, they're irrelevant. They've become irrelevant. And then suddenly someone will pluck them out of, the, of, of that world, and, uh, uh, and, and that, or they make a run for it. Actually, part of the story is the server's about to be shut down. They're all going to be destroyed. So... So they try and break out. So, we, so what we're doing is we are, for instance, this is an example. We are creating NFTs to, and online auditioning CG artists who have had their own CG creations rejected and auditioning them, online auditioning them, creating characters which will then become, uh, which will then become characters that will then hopefully go into a TV show. Um, to give you another, uh, you know, uh, and that TV show could become an animated movie. Again, it's it's kind of regenerating assets. Once you build something, and they're successful, you want to be able to to use them in lots of different ways. Um, and again, part of the Gallery of Living History and our sort of next generation storytelling uh, mission is 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 is. You know, the delivery, we all know the delivery platform for, for, for VR isn't quite there yet, nor is AR, but it will soon be there. And what's that world going to look like? Is it going to be, we, we know, you know, we have secret cinema, we have punch drunk theatre, we have all sorts of storytelling uh, live experiences that will somehow, like the ABBA, ABBA show that's on now, you know, there will be a time in the not too distant future where we are able to, uh, have live immersive shows that we can properly um, and simply use devices to connect with, and that's that's just a fact. It's coming. So so we're we're sort of trying to keep in touch with all of that, stay stay ahead of it, and not only just the technology, but the stories that are going to be best represented in that. In the, you know, using those those formats. To give you an example, we we work with the Royal Shakespeare Company on a production of The Tempest a few years ago and created the world's first sort of performance capture live on stage as part of a, a show. We've just done a, a, we've taken a show called The Grinning Man, which came, which was an amazing theatre show, which we entirely performance captured with a view to turning into an animated movie and, um, a, a, or a TV show. You know, so it's, so that it, it's really looking at, at all of these different aspects of performance, technology, great writing, and um, uh, and and, fi and finding out how what that you know the next the next leap is going to be. What so lots of big headlines around just how difficult the industry is right now, and um, you know inflation uh, recession on the horizon, downward pressure etc. What do you both in your in your from your vantage point? How do you what, what are your biggest challenges on a day to day basis and for the company? I think the most difficult thing right now is everyone's so busy uh, that getting particularly actors, actually, for your show is very difficult. Um, getting writers isn't difficult if you do what we do, which is find them, um, as well as get people who are well-established. There has been a brilliant inflation, which is great for everybody. Everybody's earning more money, the people who are doing it. That's put the costs up. We have an advantage, which is because we 
you know, we have a sister company who are a technology company, we can actually get under the hood of visual effects. We actually know how they work and how much they cost. And obviously what's happening, technology reduces the cost all the time of the visual effects. The visual effects companies, and probably some people here who are in them, are busy trying to hide that fact, understandably, and do the men in white coats, I'm a doctor who scribbles something that you can't read thing, which is quite effective, but not very effective with us because we actually know how to look under that hood. So that, that is a big advantage, actually. Um, and also now, really quite early on in the process of development, we will have a visual effects person in the room going, by the way, if that animal is bald, you're going to save $3 million or... If you don't put that on a, if you put that on a river but not on the sea, you're going to save a million dollars. It's kind of basic, but it's quite interesting. So you don't get to that horrible stage of going, shit, I'm 100% over budget, or oh dear, I don't know how to do this. So the creativity and the technology, if you like, the use of the creative technology, move hand in hand, side by side, and you're not frightened of it. I remember years ago. Uh, what was I doing? Oh, yeah, Elizabeth the Golden Age with Kate Blanchett, and we were fighting the Battle of, Arma of the Armada in a computer, and I had no idea what this meant or whatever, and the, they, they were very nice, and they were very good, and they didn't try and rip us off, but it could have been much better had I actually understood the process, which I now do, and that was a moment of going, I'm not going to do that again until I understand how the technology works. But the biggest challenge, obviously, is finding something amazing, a project that is so amazing that nobody else has found it <laughs> or nobody else is already doing it. That's the most annoying thing, which I'm sure all of you in this room have done and we've done many times. You just get to the point where your brilliant project is ready to go and some other person uh, is doing it and has got it funded. I don't know what you do about that. I don't think you can do anything about that. And it's one of the reasons that we actually tell people what we're doing quite a lot hoping, probably wrongly, <laughs> that we frighten them off. <laughs> it probably, probably doesn't work. Um, but I don't know what you do about that. Um, but listen, it's, it's both a brilliant time for all of us because it's, you know, more TV is being made and it's better TV than it's ever been, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also a very congested marketplace. And you look in the eyes. I mean, God, to be a commissioner, you've got to be a very brave person because... You know, everyone comes up to you every 30 seconds and pitches something that's genuinely really good with genuinely really interesting attachments. So I'm glad I don't commission. <laughs> Andy, what, um, what is the most exciting thing that you're looking forward to at the moment? Well, there's so, there's so many. There's, there are so many things, actually. But I, I am thrilled that we finally managed to uh, get into production with Animal Farm because... That, that has been a project, that was one of our first ever, I mean, this is how long it's taken, you know, one of our first projects which we got together and we said, we, we want to tell this story, it's a great story, and it's only become more relevant, actually, uh, over the years. It's, and it, now it's such a great time for it to, to finally make its way into, you know, so we've been working on it for a year, we've been building an animatic, I mean, this is how it rolls, it, you know, and, and as I say, oh, this is our first full-on animation, but... I have never met any of the crew at all. I've been working with them for a year on Zoom, um, working LA hours, and, and it's quite extraordinary how much you can do remotely. It really is 
incredible. I mean, I did the whole of uh, um, Venom post-production remotely because um, of COVID. And, but then it's just that the whole... We just think totally differently now. I mean, we can achieve so much. It's so bizarre. You just think you have to be in the room. And, and actually, there's a clarity about not being in the room. With, you know, there's this... There's, there's because you, you really do get to the point. And, and you can be quite analytical. Uh, obviously, it works for some projects more than others. But, but yeah, I'm really, really excited that we will have finally made the film that, that was, was the, the, you know, the core of, of, of our mission, really, for such a long time. And it's also quite interesting what technology allows you to do. So Andy likes working on about 16 things at the same time. And so we figured out that Animal Farm, we, we work on for two hours every day, or he does, two hours every day for two years, basically, in the evening. So we talk to Montreal, LA, etc. And it means we can do all the other projects that we're doing, all the other films and TV shows that we're in pre-production or soft pre-production with Andy and all the other things while actually making a movie. And I think we'll probably make a film and a TV series and Animal Farm with Andy all at the same time um, because you can, you can now do that. Uh, and, that's, and that's great if you want to do that. I mean, I quite like sleep, but he doesn't do any sleep. <laughs> so, so I... So, but but it, but you can do it, and if you have his restless creativity, it has to, it has to. It's like it, my dad sometimes. <laughs> it has to have its outlet, and that's and that's good. Um, we're just about to run out of time, but I would love to end the session on focusing a little bit about I think what is one of the is the connective tissue as to why we're all in this industry in the first place. Um, and that is to ask you both, I mean, there's a common denominator is about adventure and imagination, storytelling. And I just wonder if you could reflect personally on who fed your imagination, who facilitated as, you know, whenever, whenever it happened, whenever it kind of blossomed for you, what were the important ingredients that have meant that you're sitting on this stage? Well, I'll do it first. Much less interesting than his. I was an only child and... Um my father was disabled, and I spent most of my early life on my own, which meant I made everything up and all my friends were imaginary and all that stuff that people do. Then there was a problem, which was that continued. So <laughs> when everyone else had grown out of making things up, I hadn't. And so I became this rampant fantasist. And um, something had to give. And basically, I think it was my wife who said, you've got to stop making things up. And I went, no, I think I can go on making things up. So... I professionalized my making things up. So it was therapy meets creativity. So that was a sad but true story. Um, yeah, I mean, I had no... It's so weird, isn't it? Kind of the, the adjacent promise in life, the, the, the sliding doors moment, whatever you want to call it. But um, I, I had no intentions of, of acting whatsoever. No, I, when I was growing up, I was purely... I, I drew and drew and painted, and that was what I wanted to be. And then when I went to college, I actually made a mistake because I went to Lancaster University thinking, well, it's near the Lake District and I can go climbing. And uh, But um, I made a mistake that you had to do something in your first year other than um, s s the thing that you wanted to be there doing. And there was a theatre studies department, and I was like, well, maybe I can design some posters or something for... Uh, for the shows or make some props or something. And then, uh, and then I started acting. And then by the end of the first year, I, I played a, a character and kind of understood about walking in someone else's shoes, literally becoming someone else. And that was a kind of, 
a hugely kind of ep epiphanous, if that's a word, moment. Um, and so, that, they, yeah, there, there are two sort of two, two big sliding door moments for me. But that, that was huge. And he was a great student director called Tony Bell, who's also an actor. And he, he, and I, my life literally that, that was, was turned on its head by that. And then, um, and then it was the Lord of the Rings experience where, where you know, I was... I remember I was in Prague, I was shooting Alan Bleasdale's version of Oliver Twist, I was playing Bill Sykes, and got a phone call saying, uh, they're making this film of Lord of the Rings down in New Zealand, and they want someone to do a voice for a digital character, and I was like, a digital a voice for a digital character? I'm an actor. Um, can you not get me up for a decent role? And, um, and, you know, there must be loads of good parts in Lord of the Rings, I want to do a digital character. Anyway, and then it turns for, you know, transpired that it was Gollum, and... Uh, and that they were at the beginning of this journey of creating, uh, uh, this using this technology called motion capture, and the, the, uh, Peter Jackson wanted someone on set to act with other actors, you know. So, so it was like, uh, and then, and, uh, but we, and, then, and when I met him, that again, that was another the big, huge turning point, because he was he was someone who was saying, "Come with me on a journey. I don't know where it's going to go, how it's going to pan out," and 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 it was. Okay, and that was that was the beginning of a relationship which has lasted for the last twenty years, and I can't tell you how much it's affected me. It's got, you know, it's opened up. Not only was it a great role to play, but it opened up a, a, an entire world of of experiences. Of you know, he then asked me to direct this, you know, the second unit on the Hobbit, and then play King Kong. You know, and that was. The, you know, it's like it's like okay, I've played a three and a half foot hobbit. Now I'm playing a twenty five foot gorilla. This technology is really, really great. It means that any actor can play anything. You know, so so it's it, that those experiences. You don't you some you think you can control the journey in your life, and perhaps you do to a certain extent. But there are always these moments which kind of lead you off, and I think it's being open to. Um, and just 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 taking the risks to to you know grab them or or, or see some value in them. Good advice. And on that note, uh, thank you all so much for being here and please join me in thanking the panel. Amazing. As the global content business continues to boom, the world of mergers and acquisitions, both in terms of company sales and investment, catalogues and brands continues apace. But what are the trends shaping M&A activity in 2023? How are investors aiming to spend their money? What are the models that make most sense? And how will the market evolve this year and beyond? All3 Media Chief Executive Jane Turton, ACF Investment Bank founder Thomas Day, Asatcha Media Group co-founder and co-chief executive Marina Williams, and Access Entertainment President Danny Cohen spoke to Ed Waller at C21's Content London. Anyone that's been reading the news will see there's an awful lot of mergers and acquisitions activity going on. In the last few months, 72 films, Wildstar, Plimpsoul, Silvio Productions in Israel, Eureka, Beyond, Breakthrough, all these companies have all changed hands. Sid Gentle in the drama space, Anagram, you know, the list is, is quite extensive. So I'm going to pitch a question to our panel just to talk us through uh, this M&A um, frenzy, uh, if it is good to describe it in that way, um, and what the strategic direction of it all is. Um, I'm going to turn to you, Jane, if that's all right. Talk, talk us through what your, your reaction to all this M&A activity has been. Look, so, uh, t'was ever thus a bit. I mean, I don't think this is a new phenomenon. I think that this world that we live in in content production is dynamic. It always has been. Um, and part of that has always been mergers and acquisition activity. So I don't think there's anything new. I think what is interesting is that Post-pandemic, we've apparently bounced back. I think we're busier than ever. I'm sure 
the lovely handsome banker sitting next to me will tell us that he's <laughs> busier than ever, no doubt. Um, but I think, look, I think that is quite interesting. So the demand for high-quality talent, demand for high-quality IP, stronger than ever, no doubt. A lot of what you're seeing in that list is about that. It's about people buying businesses that are well-managed, well-led, stunning creative, stunning IP. So, I mean, look at the list, 72, Plimsoll, etc. So I think, I think there's nothing new about anything we're seeing. I think what maybe is a little bit surprising is how busy it is this year, given we're facing into recession. But maybe that too is inevitable because these assets are precious and they're rare. So when they come up for sale, people will respond. And I think... That's how long-term business building works. It's about building long-term business, and you do it with the best people and the best assets. Thomas, you were probably involved in half of those uh, mergers and acquisitions that I just listed. Tell us what your take on uh, this, this boom, or whether, whether it is a boom or not, or whether it's just situation normal. <laughs> I don't want to go after Jane, because she sounds so articulate in explaining it, whereas I'm in the middle of it, kind of doing it. And she calls you handsome as well, I think. <laughs> I know, I'm going to bank that. My judgment's always been slightly peculiar. <laughs> Coffee hasn't kicked in yet. <laughs> I mean, the first thing is to look at the world that we exist in, in the content environment. And with the streaming platforms coming online during the pandemic, they pumped a whole load of money into our sector, a whole load of new money that came from subscribers. And a lot of that wasn't duplicated by a loss of people on cable and channels, etc. It was new money. So there was a big wave of money that came into the sector and, and helped a lot of these companies that were growing with really big fat commissions. And what I've seen is that the consolidators sitting around me, they want to add producers to their group that can service the streaming platforms and also can service the new world of media. So why not go and buy those people who have already demonstrated it and bring them into the group? And finance was cheap. I mean, debt was quite cheap up until about six, 12 months ago. So you had a perfect environment of growing companies, cheap debt, consolidators looking to add companies to their mix. And there are very, and it's the wonderful thing about content creation, that there is a constant new wave of people coming in with great ideas and new ways of looking at things. And I think it helps keep the bigger groups fresh by bringing them into, the into their group. Um, so it was a real mix. And it was, it was, I've seen very healthy growth year on year for these companies. And I feel a bit embarrassed because everyone else is out there looking at the clouds and the negativity. And yet in our world, I feel like we're in this oasis of positiveness. So I try and keep it quiet because I don't want to brag too much. Like, hey, my, these people are doing really well. But they are. They're doubling in size each year and they're getting bigger and better. And it's very exciting times. I mean, I think it's probably one of the best markets I've seen in 20 years. Excellent. Um, we'll dig into some of that through this session. Marina, um, you've done your fair share of, of consolidating uh, since Sasha was set up Two years ago? Two years ago, yes. So we're what's your young. take on this, this, this <laughs> landscape we are in at the moment Thanks. where there seems to be M&A stories coming out every day? True. Actually, I was listening to the um, recent convention that last year there were 60 major transactions versus, I think, 40 a year before. But I think M&A is driven by both sides, by buyers and sellers. So whilst definitely their growth and content need demanding us consolidators, you know, to, to look for new targets because there is still growing demand in content. I also say, see that sellers and companies are interested to join bigger groups. And probably this comes from the pressure of the industry and in particular 
the new trends in the markets, uh, pressure on production margins, pressure to do more co-financing deals, and sellers and various companies coming together, they realize that they're stronger being part of the group rather than being on their own. So to me, the mergers and acquisition trend has two sides of the coin. So it's not only about us looking to grow, it's also about sellers coming to us because they want to join bigger groups. Security of, of the... Uh, more leverage, <clears throat> more opportunity to find financing. Uh, you are bigger, you are better, you can use expertise of each other, you are more diverse. You know, I think these days you need to be more diverse in genre. You can't just be a very niche company. So when you come to big clients, whether it's public TV, whether it's streamers, you want to have a proven record across variety, you know, premium content, but also ability to deliver factual genre, non-scripted, scripted. So I think that's, a, that's really the strength of the group when you join it. I think Marina's right. I think that a lot of these businesses have the creative talents, are the owners and the kind of CEOs of the company. And I think their companies have grown really rapidly and they're almost incidental owners of a big company. And what they want to do is create really compelling content and shows. And they suddenly find they've got this big business. So joining one of the professional consolidators and having the access to all of their sort of departments and all their services and international reach is on their mind. And, and also the money, because the, the, they often aren't aiming at the money, but it's also more than they dreamed about having. So it's a kind of win-win. Yeah, and the business is about people. You know, for us, the criteria, the key criteria is, you know, finding the right partnerships because we are not just buying businesses. We are partnering with people to grow our Sasha Media Group. And it's European entity. So we look for people who are not at the end of the road, you know, who are not looking just for exit, but who are joining us to continue the growth path. Who, who want to leverage their content, who want to scale up their content, to bring it to and elevate it to the next level. So and that's what excites us. And okay. this is the kind of companies we look for. Danny, you've uh, dipped your toe into a bit of uh, M&A with production companies, but not so much of late. Tell, tell us what your take on this, this, this perceived boom, or is it... Uh, Listen, I, I, I think this is... I don't think there's ever been a best time to be in the content business overall, and I don't think there's ever been a best time to be a viewer of content. Um, we, we have a slightly different model. We're not a distributor. Um, we are more engaged with uh, exit value and terminal value at the end of a, of a deal, at the end of an investment. So we're not building that. So for us, um, we've continued to invest. We just invested in A24, um, the, the American film and television business. Um, we're making some films with them, and then we, we made an equity investment in the business. But we... Because companies don't hold libraries in quite the same way they did, because so much rights is given away to streamers, it's not quite the same for us. Um, so we've been looking into other areas, particularly in digital content. Uh, we'll continue to make films. We'll continue to make a small amount of investments. Um, you know, really, we feel a gold standard investments like A24. Uh, but we've been looking in other areas like YouTube, um, gaming, and so on, alongside television and film. Um, to make sure, from our perspective, we're diversified across a wide range of content types. Excellent. I'm going to quiz you about that momentarily. But I wanted to come back to this idea that, that, that there's some new money coming into the business because uh, something that you mentioned, Thomas, um, that, there, that we've spoken in the past about private equity coming into the, into the sector. There seems to be lots of big US companies like Candle that are now rolling up 
and consolidating across the business with, as you described it in our prep call, US-sized chunks of money. Uh, tell us about that, because that's obviously a, a, new, a new dimension to this, uh, this trend. God, how far back? I mean, it, if you look at the US markets, they reversed the rights position in about the late, I think, the 90s, where the rights left the production companies and went back to the other parties. And that created a long period of time where producers were considered, um, you know, producers with cameras. They weren't considered creators of content and everything else. So it just kind of meant that there was this big desert out there for many years. Whereas in Europe, with the rights reverting, I think the Communication Act in 2003, these companies became very valuable. And, and I think Jane created a fantastic group from that. And I think there was this disconnect between Europe and US and the European consolidators came in and bought all these companies and created all these assets. But in the US, it was quite, it was quite sort of slow. That then changed when we started doing a consolidation in the US because it was like, you don't need the rights, you're actually very valuable assets. And still the US companies didn't look at production companies as a significant asset. And that's all changed. I mean, in the last five, 10 years, everyone has jumped in and said they're interested. And I think that private equity is a good litmus test that I mean, private equity backed a lot of the early consolidators in 2000, but if you look from 2010 onwards, there weren't that many new entrants to the markets who were backed. And that really, for a decade, nothing happened with private equity other than secondary deals where they come in a second time and refinance people. But then 2020 onwards, there's been a new group, bunch of people who have come out of, of, of you know, the markets who are backed by private equity. So I think it's always an indicator. They spend a lot of time analyzing the trends of the market and where they're going. If you see them in a the market, the market's very healthy, and that's what's happening. Okay. I mean, Marina, you've worked with, I think it was Oak Tree, wasn't it, who backed the, the launch of, of, uh, of Asasha. Tell us your experiences of working with private equity. Mm, it's wonderful. fantastic. <laughs> it's wonderful. Actually, this, uh, this is my first, uh, personally, it's my first time and first experience. And, uh, you know, I have two partners, Marc-Antoine de Luin and Gaspar de Chavignac. So the idea of the Asasha Media was born by three of us, um, and we are the founders of the business. So we were looking to get financing for the business plan we wanted to roll out. And um, it took us two years to actually secure funding for our project. And um, we are very proud that Oak Tree was interested to, to come on board. There's lots so of strings attached to the money, is there not? That's what I hear from private equity. It's, it's lots, of, lots of strings attached to the money. I think uh, there are strings attached to the money, whoever your partner is. So you have to deliver on your business plan. You have to grow the business as agreed. And uh, we have strict parameters. In, in our you know business and our deal terms, but um, I believe it's a very well. I don't know if the word fair is right, but the strategy has been outlined from the beginning and our path, and I think that's the most important thing in the relationship. Okay, so. Danny, with the, with access, I think you said it was a thirty billion fund of money that I think you mentioned in our prep call. Across industries, yeah. yeah so across it's about the whole 30 industry billion, yeah. side of things. Yeah. Um, what strings do you attach to that money? Um, we're quite flexible, actually, because it's you know it's not private to it's private capital. It's private long-term patient capital. Um, we don't have to exit at a certain point in time in the way that private equity funds do. So we're quite flexible. It depends how excited and keen we are. Uh, depends what the competition from other potential investors is. Um, yeah. 
it, yeah, there's, it's, we, don't, we don't have a set model because I think flexibility and agility is, is what can often make you the best partner. Jane, when we spoke in a prep call, we were talking about the sort of your, your strategy for M&A going forward. Um, tell us a bit about that because, I mean, you've, in terms of Europe, you've got Germany and Netherlands, but a lot of in the, in the Anglosphere, as we call it. Is there a strategy to move into other parts of Europe? Yeah, no, look, I mean, we don't have, it's not an M&A strategy per, per se, it's a, it's a business strategy. So our sort of interesting question, as all three medias, we're quite narrow geographically, which is probably what I mentioned on the call. Um, so clearly, one of the things that we're looking at is geography and how do you grow quickly and efficiently, effectively outside the UK. So you do it by startup, you do it by organic, and you do it by M&A. So yes, in there is an M&A um, piece to the, the overarching strategy, which is about looking broader than our current geography. And, and that's all about trying to maximise margin and control. So as a content producer, you care about a number of things. One of the things you care about is if you create IP, you want, wherever you possibly can, to control its exploitation. And the best way to do that is to produce the shows in multiple jurisdictions. So look at the Fremantle model. I mean, look at the Asashi model. Look at the Banerjee models, ITV Studios, BBC Studios. These, these are people who plant flags in territories, often on the back of IP. So I think what we've been doing is building a format catalogue to push out. And then the next sort of question is, does one put the footprints on the, on the ground to make the shows? Um, so, yeah, I, mean, look, I think I am interested in looking outside the UK. There's all sorts of economic reasons to do that as well, by the way. They tend to be slightly lower multiple deals. They tend to, therefore, do good things from an arbitrage <laughs> perspective. There's all sorts of sort of, you know, economic, interesting economic things and some macroeconomics, actually, to about some of the sort of the markets that are growing fast, some of the markets where, um, you know, foreign language content is now travelling more. Um, so there's a whole load of sort of external um, market dynamics that come into that. So I'd look, yeah, we're, we're keen to look broad um, and for all the right reasons, I think. It's about growth. So you're looking for non-English language assets around yeah. the world? Yeah, well, I'd, I'd love to look at, you know, South America, Central America, um, Southern Europe. Um, interested to know whether Northern Europe is still too hot, you know, valuation-wise. But, you know, there's all sorts of interesting pieces out there that, as I say, actually, as Marina said, it's all ultimately about talent and IP, but within, you know, a sort of broader geography, should we be more expansive? Question. That's our sort of interesting challenge. Okay. And there the, the, the seems to also be a sort of a desire to get into the unscripted format space. So you said, you said all three isn't an unscripted format company. And you want, to, you want to change that, right? No, it's definitely an unscripted format company already. I, I just, I quite like, um, again, we're getting into very detailed points. I mean, scripted has been an absolute mainstay of all three media from the very get-go. Unscripted, we have put a lot of effort into growing. It's always been strong, but we want it to get stronger. And all of the producers in the room will know why. It's, it's, it's partly about the portfolio point actually Marina made, but it's also about some of the the pressures on funding scripted have now got considerable cash flow interesting issues working capital interesting issues all the nitty-gritty of running the, the business so what do you do well you you look within your portfolio at the balance don't you and then one of the things you might want to do certainly one of the things we've been doing organically by the way is to push into format and if you push into format <clears throat> they don't tend to be deficit funded 
the, the nice, you know, the nice quality of earnings type <clears throat> bits of business. So lots of economic reasons, and not least, actually, interesting areas. You know, Traitor Studio Lambert show out of a format we created organically in Holland. So, you know, lots of stuff like that happening in all three, and that's what we're keen to continue to do. Okay, interesting. Um, Thomas, one of the things that I was going to ask you about is um, the trends within this M&A activity. And then obviously, we've, we've seen um, a lot of people buying into the premium factual space in the last few months because of this perceived boom in, in premium factual. Is there, is, is there other areas of, of, of the genres that are going to be hot looking into next year, perhaps, do you think? You've been talking about LATAM, for, for instance. It's funny, every time you said the word m and I was getting more and more excited, and then every time Jane said organic, I got less excited. <laughs> I was thinking, no, organic's not good, you should buy. Um, there, is, there, is, um, there is a trend, actually, um, and what we've seen is... <laughs> 10, 15 years ago, the place that all three dominated in the scripted space, it was, a, it was considered a very technical kind of risky area because you had to spend a lot of money. There was a lot of time frame from concept to air. So it, it was a more professional approach you needed to be in that space. So as a result, people were a bit risk averse, so they didn't want to be in that area. Then the streaming platforms came in and said, no, we're here. We want to buy a lot of scripted content. And the scripted area has really dominated as a very premium, exciting area for the last five, six years. I mean, maybe even longer. Um, once we'd all seen that glut of very expensive scripted shows, I mean, all of us had this list. It replaced sports in England. People started talking about their top five favorite shows, right? And we all had all this backlist of shows we had to watch because everyone was telling you to watch them. I saw it change, and it went into premium. I mean, the word became, from scripted to unscripted, it became premium, non-premium. So it moved into premium, unscripted, and that was documentary. That was a lot of other areas. Now the streaming platforms have said, we can't have a business model that's based on the, just these expensive shows. So I think they're starting to look now into light entertainment, and I think they're starting to look at live. They're looking at sport, and dare I say it, reality. Um, you know, and I, I would expect them to move there because they need a lower pricing point, higher volume interaction with their subscribers. Because if anyone goes on to Apple at the moment, they'll see there isn't a huge amount of content there. So people go on the platform and then come off. You do that as well with some of the other smaller platforms. So they're going to need to have a lower pricing point, higher volume of content that they can interact with people. And now they're starting to do group watching as well. They're trying to bring back this concept that everyone watches <coughs> at the same time. So that will then lead the M&A trend. So I think you get a demand at the top, and then that leads to the type of companies being purchased. So I expect to see it dropping out of premium unscripted, and we start moving into light entertainment and other areas. I think it's Marina's point about portfolio. The, the, you know, they, they, want, they want variety. You can't live off you know, high-protein diet exclusively. I mean, Dan, it'd be interesting. It's remarkably like linear television back in the day, isn't it? You know, they're commissioning and dropping, by the way, weekly. That sounds awfully like a schedule to me. They're what, you know, live event telly, sport, very much like schedule. It's fascinating. The blurring of the edges and some of these, you know, on-demand versus linear. Well, actually, if you really look at it, it's really converging in a way that is quite an interesting, quite recent phenomenon. And I think you're right. We're, we're making reality for streamers. Mm -hmm. We certainly weren't doing that three years ago. Yeah. I think the methods, the methods of how we view and consume content changed. But viewer have not changed. Yeah. Viewer wants a diversity. Right. 
So it's given to the viewer in a different ways. You know, you can watch it on linear, on pay, and now, of course, streaming platforms. So, but if you look long-term, and I think it's important, like, for us, when we look at targets also, not to get carried away with certain hype, you know, every year of certain things going on, because you, we're all old enough to see what's been going on in the business, and in a way, it's cyclical. You know, so yes, premium drama was very important, Ex expensive drama was very important, but it's not sustainable. So the platforms will have to diversify. They'll have to, yes, premium factual is great, but I think volume will be also important. And in the end of the day, it's about effective content as well as successful content from racing's point of view. So merging both aspects and the companies who can do that, I think will be very important. Danny, is this tempting you back into, into the world of buying TV production companies? Um, as I said, we, we'll do a little bit of it, but we really want to be diversified across a range of content industries, so we won't be a consolidator, I don't think, at any point, no. Um, I'm not saying there's not opportunity there. There's clearly a lot of opportunity in people growing wonderful businesses, but just in terms of our model and, and how we're planning to invest, it's, it's not quite what we'll do. I'm interested in... Because um, Access bought into Bad Wolf and, 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 and sold it its stake to Sony. I think you bought into Exile and sold out of that as well. Uh, I'm interested at what point you buy in and what point you exit. When, when, does, when, does, it, when does a company look like a, a good company to invest in and then when, when is the, the ideal point to exit? Um, we tend to like when we have done it to go in relatively early because then you can see a lot of upside. Um, we would not be a second cycle company in that sense. Um, A24 is a bit different. They're already a very, very big business, and we invested for different reasons there. But it, in general, when we have done it, we've gone in quite early uh, with founders we really believe in and admire um, and help them build the business and then, and then be out at the first cycle, uh, which is what happened with Jane Tranter's company. Okay. And the, the, um, the, the sort of... The, now that the streamers are, are being a little bit more relaxed about uh, their rights and not wanting to retain everything, is, does that mean that production companies are retaining rights that you now see them as investment vehicles? Uh, yeah, possibly. I, I still think it's hard, those negotiations with streamers. I mean, I, you know, they still hold a lot of power in those negotiations, don't they? Uh, but things are changing. Um, and it's becoming ever more competitive to get the very best content, of course. There's so many people you can sell your content to these days. So if you've got a lot of options where you go to, you're obviously in a better position to negotiate. Um, so I think it's changing, but you know, they're still going to want to hold on to a lot. Um, I think they've found the streamers. They can't pay for everything themselves. You know, we're being offered um, investment deals by Hollywood studios and so on um, that we wouldn't have been offered two years ago because the... The plan for those studios at that point seemed to be we're going to own all rights and therefore we can entirely control it on our streaming service. Um, and they're starting to realize, I think, that they don't want to fund all of it. Their balance sheets don't allow them to fund all of it. Uh, debt is more expensive, so they don't want to be doing that. So we're starting to see some of those kinds of deals come back into the market um, and streamers and studios more willing to hand over some rights because they don't want to pay for it, everything themselves. Fantastic. What, I'm, I'm going to ask the other consolidators on the, on the panel. Um, obviously, a slightly different model to what Access is doing, but at what point does, does a company become interesting to you? What are the things about it that make, make it uh, a target for acquisition and valuable? Um, and what are the red lines that you think, well, no, we're not interested because of X, Y, Z? Uh, Jane? 
Well, I think please stop calling us consolidators. It's a very unattractive <laughs> expression. Um, what do we look at? started it. The empire. Yeah, no, just... I did. Start. Um, I don't remember using that. I had to assimilate. Assimilators, that's worse. Yeah. Um, so uh, what do we look for? I mean, look, I suspect we're going to say the same thing. We look for, as we have said um, previously, we look for talent. I mean, that's number one every time. More almost than IP, although... Nice secondary and nice IP is clearly really helpful. Um, so talent, and you've got to believe, haven't you, if you think about it, you're not buying the past, you're buying the future. So very simply put, you've got to believe that the combination of the support and help and finance and whatever else you're bringing to it and the talent that you're um, welcoming in adds up to growth. And I think... I don't think there are many business people who would say we're buying businesses that are going backwards. I mean, they may to asset strip, but that's not what most of us are about. We're about investing into stuff to grow it. So I think that's what it's about. You've got to believe that the, that the, the raw ingredient and the combination is such that you will create an environment where growth will happen. And it doesn't always work. Fun enough, acquisitions are less risky. The startup space that we haven't discussed is much more risky, slow and risky. And that ultimately, and non-scripted in particular, is still a very difficult model to pull off. It's, it's rare to, to, to look at the... There are very few examples today of people setting out into a world of startup, confident that in year five they will have something that's throwing off three or four million of EBITDA to get them into Thomas's diary to have a meeting <laughs> about selling. It's just tough. It's a really tough market for that, I think. I um, don't want to tell you the percentages. It's quite depressing. It's very depressing, and... Well, Stephen Brown, I can see in the audience, we did a bit of analysis the other day to look at non-scripted startups. How many series do you have to believe that they can produce to get to a sort of plausible outcome? 24 series in the first five years. Well, they're not going to do anything in the first two years because they're developing and selling. So that means you've got 24 series of production crammed into the final three years of that five-year cycle. Now, again, that's very basic sort of, you know, building block type analysis. It's far more sophisticated in the real world. But it's, not a, it's quite a reality check, that, isn't it, if you think about what, what's required. So long-winded answer to your question. We are looking for talent. We're looking for people we think we can support to grow. Marina? The, the, yeah, well, obviously, same as But the red lines says, that would turn you off a company, what would they be? The red lines, I mean, like... The red lines? Yeah. Okay, quite, quite a few red lines, I would think. I think when we, when we look at the companies, obviously, we look at the track record, and as Jane said, we look at the future. So it has to be the right balance. I think diversity is important for us in terms of clientele, you know, so in a way, a red flag is if somebody relies entirely on one commissioner, on one client, so which shows sort of certain difficulties, you know, that company to break into space or into relationships because at the end of the day you know you have to be as broad as possible with with your product and you want to see the ability of the talent to satisfy demands of a variety client and not to be dependent on just one certain relationship because we see companies from time to time which have don't know one major production just with one streamer and you don't know what's going to happen you know at the end of one season and is it going to be renewed or not is there any other deal to happen? This is difficult. So it's more kind of in a startup area situation, and that's very hard to assess. So in a way, that's a red flag for us. 
So in, uh, we, we look at the companies also where people are interested to stay long-term. So red flag if we see somebody just want to exit very quickly. So it's more of a monetization strategy for them rather than a growth strategy. So I think that's a major red flag because we are, you know, we are a young platform. We are growing. We would like people to come on board and grow together with us. And our model is, is, is different from some, some other companies because we, from the outset of our model, we decided that we want our partners to retain stake, not only locally, but also to have uh, shares in Asashar as a parent company. So finding the people who actually have this mentality of pan-European approach, rather than being focused only on growing their own business, is very important for us. And, and that criteria is quite specific to, to us, Sasha, and we follow it strictly. Danny, I'm going to ask you, because one of the things that you, although you haven't invested in Prodco's uh, enormously uh, since the first couple of years of, of Access Entertainment, you did, you, you did say you're, you're keen to invest in digital assets and digital content. Tell us, tell us about that. Yeah, so we've tried to diversify quite a lot. So we have various investments in film. Uh, we have a lot in theatre. Um, but probably the largest growth area has been digital content, um, gaming, ad tech. Um, one of the ones that's been the most interesting, the fastest growth to us is a YouTube-related business. Um, and we were approached by a couple of founders in only three years ago, actually, uh, five guys in a WeWork in LA. Um, and they had a very simple proposition. Um, people have been buying music and film libraries and trading them for decades uh, very lucratively. No one's buying up YouTube libraries. And there's tens of billions of asset value in, in YouTube libraries. So we backed them with a, a few million at the beginning, and they took on some debt and a couple of other investors. Um, and they built an incredible business. They have a lot of proprietary data, which allows them to value the libraries. So they essentially approached you know, the biggest creators in the world of YouTube content and offered them an upfront payment to own five, the last five years of their library and similar deals. Um, and it's gained a lot of traction. Um, they've um, about $740 million of library they've bought over the last three years. Um, and the target is to get to a billion dollars of, of purchase by the end of next year. Um, and it's become very big businesses. I think it's about 85 billion uh, minutes of YouTube viewing time they now own a month, which allows them to consolidate all of that together and sell it directly to advertisers. So, so we're finding some very, very interesting businesses around um, what people term the creator economy, um, particularly YouTube. Uh, the monetization around YouTube is far more advanced um, for creators than TikTok and, um, and Facebook and so on. So we found that really exciting, very fast growth, uh, quickly profitable, um, and we've got very big ambitions for that company with, with a larger shelter in it, and, and they, you know, they've got very, very strong profitability. Although they, at this stage, they recycle all of the profits into buying more content. Um, so we've created this virtuous circle now where we don't think it will need more investment because the profitability drives for further purchasing. Um, so, so we want to be diversified like that. We don't want to just be in TV, we're film, theatre, um, and, and also similarly mobile gaming. There's some very interesting experiments going on now um, that combine what you call video, television in one sense, with mobile gaming. Um, we found one particular company in, in Oslo uh, actually, interestingly, one, two brothers. One was uh, worked on The Voice, was a TV producer, and the other one was in gaming. And they've come together and created, I think, a really wonderful model that combines TV, a nightly TV show 
uh, with mobile gaming. So we're very interested in that kind of um, innovation, digital innovation, um, and, and it can be produced at low cost and therefore be highly profitable. Um, so we're going to keep plugging away there and, and, and look for more in, the, in that creator economy space. I think the hardest thing in that area at the moment is it's generally hard to know what things are worth. Um, and I think that may be true for the TV side as well at the moment. You know, it's very hard with a recession coming, uh, with interest rates going up, to know what the right multiple is and what, what something's worth, and also whether it might be worth a different price in six months, given where we're going with the economy. So we're, 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 we're quite cautious. We've been quite cautious this year um, because we don't have to invest to a particular schedule uh, to make sure that we're buying things at, at a price which makes them interesting for us. And Jane, you're, you're, in, the, in our prep call, you mentioned that you were interested in the tech space as well, tech and, and digital content. Tell us, when you hear Danny talk about it like that, is that, is that, does that chime in with your analysis? Yeah, look, I'm not at all surprised that um, he's looking at that. It's interesting. I mean, I think it is quite challenging valuing the assets. We're buying, for example, one of the deals we're doing at the moment is buying a, a piece of um, software, effectively, a piece of IP but software IP as opposed to tele IP, content IP, for our digital business, which will help them just basically drive um, analytics around the... Um, we've got a digital business called Little Dot. So around the, um, what we're doing largely on YouTube, fun enough, we too are very heavily YouTube-focused still. We, we, we try to, to maintain a balance, but actually we still remain quite heavily YouTube-focused. So we, we do some quite old-fashioned stuff in there, you know, claiming content, we're running channels, a lot of channels. It's up in billions and billions of views. The numbers are sort of not understandable sometimes because the currency is just very different. Um, we're making content, so we're originating, and we're also now sort of bleeding backwards and forwards from what more, more conventional media to... Um, so history programmes with Dan Snow through a subsidiary we have in our, in our digital studio called history hit, SVOD podcast, he's actually one of the guys who was on the ship that found Endurance, Shackleton's Endurance, so guess what, a Nat Geo film, a very old-fashioned thing, all the way through the digital sphere. So you take one piece of content and you try and sort of maximise the exploitation across platform. Um, that's interesting. It's actually quite a conventional business model in, in many aspects, but then it becomes less conventional for us when you get into the B2C space and you're selling airtime. And then, of course... Well, airtime, even that's old-fashioned, isn't it? But you're selling um, eyeballs. And then, of course, you suddenly hit a recession and you realise the CPMs are cratering in a way that you're protected from in our normal B2B business. So it's, it's really interesting, but I'm so not surprised you're looking at it. We're, we're reticent sometimes, but we are interested investors in it um, in a way that we make sure constantly we're checking, we understand it. I'm paranoid as a business person that you take leaps of faith into spaces you don't understand because it makes me deeply uncomfortable if someone's saying, here we go, and, and then you look at them and you think, well, you could be a charlatan. I, I just don't <laughs> understand the alchemy of this thing. doesn't make sense. So that's what we try constantly to do, which is to sort of get to the business model of it, to check we understand it. And it's not that easy, is it, in some of those spaces? No. Um, so I think that's the interesting challenge for all of the, you know, content yeah. people. We looked into metaverse. Oh, and, uh, yes. whatever that's You know, it's because uh, yeah. we are opportunistic. It's not the core business for us at the moment. Obviously, we're still conventional growth of, you know, production and content business. But it was interesting because some opportunities come our way, and uh, 
it's difficult to find the right business model. You know, what is the monetization model? Is it the right timing? So that's also the answers that we have to give. You know, and there is certain strategy for us today. So maybe we decided that particular opportunity was too early for us. We still want to see what is their metaverse monetization. You know, the, the, the cost of the yeah, the yeah. cost of the content. Yeah. You know. Yeah, we've been pitched a lot of metaverses and I've been inside quite a few of them now. I don't know how you make money. Yeah. I, I find it very hard to understand why one would be better than another. So I find it very hard to make judgments about what's good. It's unnerving. Good, yeah. What's yeah. Good. It's an amazing and, experience. And, and I don't know how to value them. And some right. of them are already worth hundreds of millions um, and they're still in development. So, so the valuations seem to have got out of kilter with it as well. So I, 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 we felt the same. We quite probably could be wrong and someone's going to make a fortune, but we've been very cautious about those. But, but I think metaverse is just a word that's been created in the content space because I think it already exists in the gaming space. And I think it's been around for 20 years. So they've had an interactive commercial interaction in a, another universe going for 20 years. But then in the content space, everyone needed a new word. So they created Metaverse. And but there's a lot of new ones coming yeah. online. Yeah. So, so there were, there were obviously Fortnite, but there's a lot of now being built yeah. off the back of the push that Meta and others have gone into. And I, 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 I just can't tell what's good. I don't, maybe it's generational, but I, I don't, I don't <laughs> know what, what it means, really. I've still got a character wandering around Second Life. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I wanted to tap into something, um, uh, Thomas, that you, a, deal, uh, a deal you did recently with, uh, with Psycho, um, uh, where you are talking about buying the future that, we, that Jane mentioned. Tell us about that deal, because I think it ties in with the thing that Danny did with, with Spotters, the, the, the YouTube guys. Sure. Um, I think we've all seen that there's been a number of music catalogues that have been sold recently or securitized. Um, so we've seen things like the Rolling Stones, all these people sort of monetizing their libraries. Um, and I thought in the content space that there's a lot of income streams that look very similar to the royalties of the music space. And Psycho in particular had a couple of franchises, Got Talent and X Factor. And, and we actually sat down with Simon and said to him, I think you know, there, were, there were people who were looking to buy his company, people looking to do stuff with him. And I said, if you want to raise some money, I think there's another way we could do it. We could look at your income stream from Got Talent and we could go out and securitize it. And of course, he looked at me blankly and said, what the hell are you talking about, right? And I had to go through it again and explain very slowly that I think we could, there's lots of people out there that are looking to raise money, lend money against these income streams. And that's what we did. We actually went out. I mean, the thing we did that was a little bit smart was we went to a credit rating agency and got them to rate it. And then that turned a royalty into a security. And then we went to the insurance companies and the big banks and said, this is actually a security. It's no longer this strange bit of IP. It's actually a security. And so we went out and we raised money. Um, and I think that there's a lot of businesses out there that have these income streams that could be used as a source of finance. So it was just a different way to borrow some money. And it was just sec secured on the Got Talent franchise, not the rest of the business. So it's very limited risk. Is that the same thing, you, Danny, you did with your YouTube uh, it's not securitized, um, but uh, yeah, we buy for three years, five years. Um, we don't buy the future. We started to do a bit of buying the future, but it's slightly harder to, harder to model. Uh, so we haven't been doing as much of that. Um, and it's not in one go. So, you know, we've done a deal with one creator, $50 million plus deal with one creator because, you know, these people are making so much money from YouTube, some of these globally big creators, down to $10,000, $100,000 deals. 
So, so it's, it's multiple deals with lots of different people, um, but cumulatively, you therefore build a, they built very rapidly a very big YouTube library. And, the, and you know, as people will know, that the split is the creator gets 55% of revenue and YouTube keeps 45. So it's very clear, and that feels like quite a stable model that YouTube are unlikely to mess around with. So, you, so predictability, once you have enough data, is, is, is quite possible. It's extremely interesting. And, and do you believe that this content will be still popular in years to come, because it's very, yeah. it's very contemporary. Yeah, so, so because they have, they, have, they have about 10 years data now, YouTube data. So what they, and this is, I think, their moat, really, that what they're able to do now is that the, the creator gives them access to their videos. And because they have billions of data points now, they can model the curve, the decay curve. So, that, you know, most videos, as you say, if you're Mr. Beast, your first week will be very high. But the ones we buy, and they're all brand safe for advertising reasons, they drop, but then they actually, most of them take a steady state um, if the channel remains active. Um, so it's all about, about modelling. And, and part of the reason we pay a discount to them is we're taking the risk that we've got a modelling right. Um, and so far, of the first two years, our modelling, the, the team have done a brilliant job on that. And it's algorithmically-based modelling. Great. Fantastic. Um, I think we're sort of uh, getting towards the end of the session. And so... Um, just to recap, I think we've, we've according to the, the panel, there's going to be a lot of M&A activity in the uh, lower cost factual space. I think that's one of the, the, the uh, conclusions. We've, the Latin America cropped up, Southern Europe seems to be in, in the, uh, the crosshairs, and we've seen um, digital content and movies. So uh, a little bit of old, a little bit of new. So um, all that remains for me to do is to thank our panel, uh, Jane, uh, Thomas, Marina, and Danny, and thank you for coming. Jane Turton, Thomas Day, Marina Williams and Danny Cohen speaking with Ed Waller. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussions by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name is Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 